You're listening to a sermon from Centerpoint Bathgate, available here each week. We hope you enjoy this talk and join us for more, either online or in person at Simpson Primary School Bathgate, any Sunday morning at half past ten. Well, good morning, church. Good to see you. Glad that you're along with us today at Centerpoint. Here, as we launch into 2019, we are starting a new series based in the book of Hebrews, reflecting on the theme of faith, and it's called Great Faith. Now, this idea of great faith comes from a couple of encounters that Jesus had with specific people. And interestingly, they were both Gentiles. They were non-Jews. One of them was a woman. One of them was a man. And these are the two times where Jesus looked at someone and said, you have great faith. Now, there are several times he looked at his disciples and said, oh, you of little faith, why am I still tolerating you guys? So we don't want to be like the disciples who had little faith, but when Jesus told these people that they had great faith, interestingly, the word in the Greek is mega, megaspistis, great faith. So we're asking God to build into us mega faith. That's what this is all about. Now, faith is important because Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. So whatever faith is, it's an absolute necessary requisite to have a thriving relationship with God. Now, faith very simply is acting like God is not a liar. Faith very simply is choosing to believe that what God has said is true. The nature of his relationship with us is a relationship of promises. He makes promises, and to the degree that we believe those promises, we get to experience the blessing that is contained in those promises. And so, when we have faith, we're not only pleasing to him, but we get to experience all that he has for us. And so the Lord wants us to have faith. And in this book of Hebrews, faith is this key ingredient that's being built in. And so we're launching this great faith series today. And our first theme is around this idea of not shrinking back not quitting, not throwing in the towel as we start. And so I'm going to read our text, and then we'll unpack this a bit and see what the Lord has to say to us this morning. This is Hebrews chapter 10, and I'm starting to read in verse 32. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence." which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, 
and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. This book of Hebrews is interesting for a couple of reasons. New Testament scholars don't know who wrote it, and they don't know exactly to whom it was written. Now, there's so much Old Testament packed into this book that the assumption is this was a predominantly Jewish community to whom this was written, and that's why it's called Hebrews, because the author uses the Old Testament to unpack the glory of what God has done in Christ. And so he's writing here, though, to Christians who have experienced some difficulties, and it seems at least like some of them are thinking about quitting. So he's telling them, don't throw in the towel. So the picture that emerges here is like a scene out of many great sports films. If you've ever seen a sports film, many of them have this moment where the coach or the manager comes in at halftime to talk to the team. And in the first half, they've been being dominated and they're losing. And you look at the scoreboard, you look with the eyes of sight and we're behind and we're losing and the coach comes in and he gives them this inspirational speech and then they go out in the second half and they win. Well, that's somewhat what this text is like. This is like a halftime talk and the coach is coming in, the Lord is speaking to us saying, don't give up, keep going guys. The second half, you're going to win. And if you can receive anything from the Lord this morning, open your heart to this one simple but profound truth, you are going to win. If you simply receive what this text is saying, God by his spirit is going to enable you to win. So he starts in verse 32 by saying, recall the former thing. So the first big idea is that we're going to remember something. Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. So first he tells them to recall the former times when after they were enlightened. So he's telling them, remember what it was like when you first became a Christian. Now, for an old guy like me that's been following Jesus for a long time, this is an incredibly difficult thing to do. That was a really long time ago. But what was it like when we first believed? What was it like when we first had the revelation that in Christ our sins are washed away, that we've been adopted into the family of God, that we have standing with God, irregardless of what we've done, that we have new life in Christ, that we have an internal inheritance in God. It was like falling in love for the first time, and it was absolutely beautiful. Whether you had a dramatic conversion experience or not, if you're a follower of Jesus, there was a moment where the Holy Spirit opened your heart to the beauty and the glory of what God has done in Christ. 
he's telling them, remember that. Remember what it was like at the very beginning when you were enlightened. But the interesting thing, not only is he telling them to remember when God reached into their lives and turned on the light, but as young believers, they had a difficult start. Now, sometimes the Christian faith is presented in a way that makes it sound like if you come to Jesus, all your problems will be solved. If you want an easy life, if you want no problems, if you want no difficulties, if you want the, the great fairy in the sky to sprinkle his pixie dust on your life so that you experience a problem-free life, then come to Jesus. That's like the opposite of what these believers experienced. They were young believers, and in the very beginning, this is what he's telling them to remember, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Now, this phrase, hard struggle, is an athletic term. It's like two wrestlers in the ring, and so he's reminding them this is what it was like at the very beginning. They were involved in a very intense struggle. So their introduction to the Christian faith was a wrestling match. They, they, they take this step of faith. They repent. They believe the gospel. They're now following Jesus. And it's like, welcome to the party. Here's a big dose of persecution. He says, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. Now, reproach and affliction speaks to two different kinds of persecution that they experienced. The reproach is verbal persecution. They were publicly harassed. They were made fun of publicly for their faith. Reproach is a verbal attack against you. The, in addition to the reproach, there was affliction physical pain. Now, later, the writer of Hebrews says that you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. And so, in this particular community, as the author is calling them to look back at their beginning, they haven't yet had any martyrs. Now, there were other places where, at this time, Christians had died for their faith. They had not, but yet, they were being publicly reviled, and they were being physically harassed. And he goes on and says that sometimes, in addition to that, they were partners with those who were being so treated. So these believers, at the very beginning of their Christian life, they were exposed to persecution, and they were partners or sympathizers, helpers with others who were being persecuted even if they were not themselves. And so the first thing he's telling them to remember that moment at the beginning of their Christian life when even though they had faith, they experienced great difficulty. Now, we may look at our lives right now, and some of you might be in a place where you're saying, yeah, I'm facing difficulty in my life. Now, we are perhaps not facing this kind of difficulty, but we do face difficulties in our lives. And the first thing that he's inviting us to do is remember what Jesus has done, and that even though we're born into conflict, the Lord is still there with us. Now, in the next verse, he goes on and unpacks in greater detail the kind of persecution that they experience and some of these experiences in their early faith. He says in verse 34, for you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. 
Now, this is a fascinating observation. First, this, you, were, you had compassion on those in prison. Now, this is not just a generically that they would randomly go to the prison and, and call up and, and speak kindly to uh, strangers who happened to be in prison. As, as noble as that is, the context here means that they were going to prison to identify and encourage, to identify with and encourage Christians who had been arrested for their faith for being Christian. And so when they were going to the prison, it meant that they themselves were identifying with these who were followers of Jesus. And so, hi, I'd like to meet and talk with prisoner 379, please. 379, oh, well, he's a Christian. Are, are you one of those Christians too? Yes, I am. And so in their early life, they were marked. They were identified as Christ followers, and that was a mark of persecution. It branded them as being outliers in this pagan Greco-Roman culture in which they lived. And the second statement is perhaps even more mind-boggling. He says that you joyfully, joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Now, so the picture here is that even though they weren't being martyred, there seems to have been some legally sanctioned official policy of harassment against the Christian community. And to the point that the officials would come in and perhaps searching for criminal elements, plunder the property in their houses. And so imagine sitting in your house and government officials are coming in and tipping over bookcases, emptying the cupboards, taking what they want. Your property is being plundered. How are you going to feel? Well, these Christians, as this is happening, as they're watching government officials come into their house, plunder their stuff, they're doing this with joy. Now, I will admit this morning, I have difficulty seeing myself being joyful in that circumstance because I admit some degree of emotional attachment and financial attachment to some of my stuff. Start tampering with my stuff, I get a little bit bothered. But these Christians, their faith in God was so strong as their stuff is being plundered, they're joyful. They're filled with the joy of the Lord as their possessions are being... How is that? How can this happen? Well, the next sentence tells us. They're joyful since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. A better possession and an abiding one. The inheritance, the eternal inheritance that we have in Christ is a better possession. There is not one thing you possess. There's not one thing that you can put in your hand, not one thing in your bank account, not one thing at home, anywhere, not the most sentimental, sacred thing that you inherited from your great-great-grandfather that is more precious than your possession in Christ. These believers understood the value of what they had in Christ. The other characteristic of this is that it is an abiding one or an eternal one. Whatever it is that you possess, whatever those possessions are that are being plundered, you're going to lose it all anyway. You don't take a bit of it with you. When you go six feet under, it's just you. 
Now, you might be like an Egyptian king and get buried with some stuff, but that, that mummy is not enjoying any of those riches that are surrounding it in that, that treasure chamber. Your stuff is not abiding, but what you have in Christ, that's eternal. These believers had a revelation of that which was truly eternal. And so as their stuff's being plundered, they're like, yeah, it's joyful. This is no big deal. This is no big deal because I've got these riches in Christ that surpass this, and it'll never go away. So the first thing that we're invited to do is to remember what it is that we have in Christ. Now, for many of us, we were best in tune with that when we were young believers because it was all new. So he's inviting us to remember And the second thing that he tells us to do is to do not throw away. Now, there's probably some stuff in your house that you do need to throw away. He's not telling you don't empty your rubbish then, but there's some stuff that we don't need to throw away. And this is what he says in verse 5. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. We don't want to throw away stuff that's valuable. Now, this past week, I read about a man down in England who made a mistake and threw away something valuable. Now, this particular man, back in 2009, he started mining bitcoins. Now, this is before bitcoins were a thing. Bitcoins are valuable now. They were nothing in 2009, and so you could mine a good bit, and they were easier to mine. And so he was mining these bitcoins, putting them on his hard drive, and then the the laptop broke. And so he's a smart guy, and he, he takes out the, the hard drive on which the, the bitcoins are. So keeps the hard drive and puts it in a safe place in his house somewhere and, you know, dis- discards the, the, the laptop and he's bopping through life. And several years later, he kind of forgets about the hard drive. One day he's cleaning his house and accidentally the hard drive with all those bitcoins ends up in the bin that ends up in the landfill. And so right now down in England, there is a landfill with a hard drive that has millions of pounds worth of bitcoins on it. The guy threw away something that had a great reward. The author of Hebrews is telling us, do not throw away your confidence because your confidence has a great reward. So whatever this confidence thing is, don't throw it away. Now, what's confidence? Well, this Greek word could be translated as cheerful boldness. Confidence, boldness, trust in God, absolutely, but with an element of of cheerfulness. So it's a happy reliance on God, cheerful boldness. Now, there are two sources of confidence that help build this and help us understand what, what he's after here and why we wouldn't want to throw this away. And one of them is just earlier in this very chapter, back in chapter 10, uh, verse 19, this is what he writes. He says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence 
to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened through the curtain that is through his flesh. So here, the confidence that we have is confidence to enter the holy places. That is confidence to enter the presence of God. What he's saying is that Jesus inaugurated this way. In the Old Testament, the only way that someone could go into the presence of God, which is in the most holy place in the tabernacle and in the temple, was the high priest once a year, and that was with the blood of animals. What the author is saying is that we have direct access to God through what Jesus has done. Through the blood of Jesus, the Lord has inaugurated, opened a way that we as sinful and broken humans can come into the very presence of God. Now, even Christians that I know almost seem trepidatious in their approach to God in prayer. And the author of Hebrews is saying, no, you have confidence to enter into the presence of God. Now, imagine the child, your child, coming to you and you're, you're in a room, you're in, in, in your office, in your study, in your kitchen, in your lounge, wherever you might be, and they want to ask you something and talk to you, and so they come slinking on the floor floor like a snake almost sort of crawling and slithering in, just afraid of what they might encounter when they come to you because they're, they're not confident at all. They might experience anger. They might experience love. They might, they, they don't know. It's, it's, it's a scary thought. It's a scary thing to come into the presence of mom or dad. And so they slink in lest they find you in a wrong way. That is not how we should approach God. The author of Hebrews is telling us because of what Jesus has done, we have confidence. We have cheerful boldness to come bopping in. Now, as children get older, they tend to get more self-conscious. But think about the, the five-year-old who has not yet discovered self-consciousness and how they'll just come bopping in and break into your life. That's how the Lord is inviting us to come to him. We have confidence to approach the God of the universe, the eternal God. We have confidence to come into his presence every day. So the author of Hebrews is saying, don't throw away your confidence. Don't throw away the boldness by which you come into the presence of God. The other confidence that we have is simply this. We have confidence that God will keep his word. We have confidence that God will keep his promises because God is a promise-keeping God. Now, the Bible is chock-a-block full of promises. One out of many examples, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion. So God looks at your life and he promises, the thing that I've started, I'm going to finish it. So just trust me. Don't get all caught up in doubt and negativity and wondering. We do that. Our hearts are frail. The promise of God, he'll finish the thing that he started. So the confidence that we do not throw away, don't throw away confidence that you have access to the presence of God. And don't throw away the confidence that God's going to finish what he started in your life and that God is a promise-keeping God. 
The next thing that we come to is very simply the encouragement to press on. Keep going. Don't give up. Stay in the race because you're going to win. And this is what he writes in verse 36. For you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Now, this is a beautiful verse and a challenging verse. It's beautiful because it's got a great promise attached to it that we'll receive what's promised. If we do whatever's in this verse, there's, we get to experience the promises of God. But the bad part about this verse is that it's calling us to endurance. Now, there are two different kinds of muscles. There's fast twitch muscles and slow twitch muscles, and you got fast twitch and you like sprinting, and if you like, you've got slow twitch, then you can go and like run forever. And I was, I was really neither one. I didn't have a whole lot of muscle at all, but I was more fast twitch than slow twitch. So for me, like a long distance marathon was like 400 meters. And I was just amazed at anyone like 800, 1600, you know, mile, kilometers, whatever. I, I just, yeah, I don't even have, so endurance, that's just not my friend. And so I, I, I read this verse and I'm like, I'm already struggling emotionally with what this verse is saying. But this is the nature of the Christian life, endurance. I wish it was microwave. I wish there was a pill that we could take. Like I remember once walking into a pharmacy and just asking the guy, say, I know this is a silly question, but do you just like have a pill that I can take that'll make me thin and I'll get rid of all this extra fat? And it just doesn't work that way. It's diet and exercise. And in the same way, the Christian life is endurance. Now, what is endurance? Very simply, endurance is the process by which we inherit the promises of God. Endurance is the process by which the promises of God become real in our lives. Now, in Hebrews chapter 6, it says that it is through faith and patience that we inherit the promises. And so it takes these two ingredients. Now, the Bible is full of promises, but how do those become real in your life? Well, it's through faith and patience. Faith, believing that they're true. Patience, trusting that God's going to bring them into your life anyway. And so this author is telling us, keep going. And here's how you keep going through faith and patience. This is what endurance is. You're going to inherit the promises if you keep going. But this raises for us perhaps the biggest question from this text. How is it that we can have endurance? When many of us look at our lives and they're packed with struggle, as you're looking at circumstances that seem bigger than your own faith, as you're looking at circumstances that are intimidating, you're looking at situations externally you just don't know what to do with, you're looking at stuff on the inside and just say, you know, I don't know if I'm ever going to get the victory in this area or why can't I experience more of God's grace and blessing in this area. We look at our circumstances, we look at what's going on on the inside of us, and we just want to throw in the towel and quit. Because we just wonder, am I ever going to get to the other side of this thing? And the author is telling us, keep going. You have need of endurance. But where does this endurance come from? I think the answer to where we get this endurance is over at the beginning of chapter 12, 
where the author of Hebrews says this. He says, let us therefore run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. So the way that we get endurance, and here again he mentions this painful, challenging word, but endurance comes when we look to Jesus. So the things that erode endurance in our lives are when we're not looking to Jesus. And what are the two big things that we can look at instead of Jesus? Number one is external circumstances. Number two, internal problems. External circumstances and internal problems block us from seeing Jesus. The author is inviting us to redirect our gaze and look at Jesus. Now, Jesus is described here as the author and perfecter of faith, the beginner and the finisher, the founder and establisher of our faith. And so, first, Jesus initiates faith in our lives. Faith comes from him. He births it. The faith that we have is a Christ-centered faith, a faith in him, but also a faith from him. We have to ask ourselves, what kind of faith is it that Jesus is going to build? Because this verse promises us that what he started, he's going to finish. That if he has initiated faith in your life, he's going to bring it to completion. Jesus didn't start something to leave it half-baked. I don't know how many of you ever put something in the oven, brownies or cake or monkey bread or banana bread or whatever it might be, and then you just said, Ah, I'm bored with that. I think I'll leave it there and forget about it. No. If you started it, you're, you're going to come back and you're going to leave it in the oven until it's finished. And this verse is promising us that Jesus is going to finish. He's not just the initiator of our faith. He's also the perfecter or the finisher of our faith. He's going to bring it to completion. He's going to finish it. It's going to be a done deal. But we have to ask ourselves, what kind of faith is Jesus going to build in our lives? Is it weak faith? Is it flimsy faith? Is it changeable faith? Well, in 1 John chapter 5, the, uh, the Apostle John writes that this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. The kind of faith that Jesus is building in our lives is a victorious faith. It's a strong faith. It's an overcoming faith. It's a winning faith. It's a faith that dares to look at circumstances outside and problems inside and declare, my God is bigger, my God is stronger, and my God is going to take me to the other side. This is the kind of faith that Jesus is building in our lives. It is a faith that dares to believe what God has said is true and what God has started, he will finish. That's the kind of victorious faith the Lord is building in our lives. Now, if you're like me, I'm like the disciples when they said, Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Yes, we're here because we have some kind of faith, but we also recognize we need to grow in faith. This morning, whatever it is that we've been looking at, the Lord is calling us, set your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And that's why 
he, the author of Hebrews, ends this section simply by saying, we are not of those who shrink back. This is not who we are. We're not of those who shrink back. The reason he's writing us, writing to us, is because we are of those who keep going. We are of those who persevere. We are of those who endure. We are those who are aware of external circumstances, internal problems, and simply say, my God is bigger. Even if I don't understand how the Lord's going to work this out in my life, my God is going to take me to the other side. So let's go to God in prayer this morning, and let's ask God to build this kind of faith in our lives. Let's pray. Our Father, we bless you this morning. We thank you that you are the initiator and the finisher of faith in our lives. Lord, we recognize that we live in a sociocultural context that demeans the idea of faith as some kind of non-empirically, non-evidential hope and myth that things will magically somehow be better. Lord, we understand that that is not at all what faith is. Faith is absolutely reasonable because you are the God who exists and you exist in agreement with your own nature. And your own nature is that you keep your word and you fulfill your promises and what you said is true. Father, we confess this morning that sometimes we are distracted by the circumstances in our life, which seems so intimidating, so overwhelming. Lord, but unlike these Hebrews, it's, it's not yet to the point that our, our possessions are being plundered. It's not yet to the point that we're being thrown into prison for our faith. It's other stuff. There's external circumstances and internal issues. Lord, we all show up with junk this morning. Father, we all show up with baggage, oh Lord. And sometimes these external things and these internal issues, they overwhelm us, Lord, and we confess that. But Father, we ask in Jesus' name that we would do what the author of Hebrews says, that we would turn from looking at those things and that we would set our eyes on Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would grab our attention and that you would refocus us on Jesus. Remind us who he is. Remind us what he has done. Refresh us, O oh God, in the glory that Jesus loved us enough to die for us, to adopt us into his family. You've brought us to yourself, O oh God, and that what you have begun in our lives, you're going to bring it to completion. So, Father, like the disciples, we pray this morning. We believe. Help our unbelief. Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would build great faith in our lives, O oh God. We ask this, O oh Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.